1: Members get early access to most videos and get to participate in monthly Zoom hangouts with Mike. Here's the biggest stories we talked about this week on the Humanist Report. Enjoy the show. Why don't
2: you a supporting humanitarian ceasefire?
3: You no, know, I'm with the God. humanist team. No, like I can talk to him. No, I, I voted for him. I'm sorry, this is a democracy. It absolutely is. Yeah, absolutely yeah, is. but kind of, sort of. Why? 10,000 people in Gaza have been killed, half of children. The Pope's calling for a ceasefire. The UN has called for it. I'm just asking you. You're a good guy. I voted for you. I know you're a nice guy. This is important. Here, can I give you a can I asked the senator a question. So I asked him a question.
1: He just assaulted him. He just assaulted him.
2: He, he,
4: he just assaulted him. he just assaulted him. He just assaulted him. He was just talking to him. He assaulted him.
5: So that's what happened when John Fetterman was asked to support a ceasefire in Gaza. Now, the person who was confronting him is Daniel Kovalik. He's an attorney and former professor of international human rights at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. And in a vacuum, there's nothing wrong with him asking that question and confronting Fetterman. But with that being said, he is not the best messenger, to put it mildly. A quick Google search reveals that he's an enthusiastic Putin apologist who literally penned an article for RT laughably claiming that Russia's invasion into Ukraine was legal under international law. So I mean, he's obviously not morally consistent when it comes to war and war crimes. And when you consider the fact that he also pays for Twitter, there is a possibility that he was just looking for a viral moment to up his engagement and cash in. And I mean, after raking in 6 million views for that video, mission accomplished if that was indeed his actual goal but i mean i don't know what his actual goal was there i can only speculate about his true intentions i just i don't know in truth but if you support russia's invasion of ukraine i just can't believe that you care about israel's invasion of gaza for humanitarian reasons it feels opportunistic to me and i also have no idea if federan's team recognized him and assumed that he was a troll which is why they didn't want to engage with him but putting motivations aside pressure does still need to be applied to all politicians still refusing to support a ceasefire and Fetterman does still need to explain to his constituents, maybe not that guy, but other constituents, why he doesn't support a ceasefire. And if he doesn't want to engage with a bad faith actor like that, there are hundreds of constituents he can talk to who are supporting a ceasefire and demanding that Fetterman support a ceasefire for altruistic reasons. But Fetterman is refusing to listen to these voices as well. For example, after Fetterman's October 18th tweet insisting now is not the time to talk about a ceasefire, he was met with immediate and justifiable backlash. As Newsweek explains, Fetterman's stance sparked statewide pro-Palestinian protests outside his four offices, with hundreds of demonstrators gathering at Custom House in Philadelphia on Thursday. And Ariel Cohen, who protested outside of his Philadelphia office, says that they were expelled with no warning. And as you can see from the video that she shared on Twitter, they were being completely peaceful. But regardless, if they're welcome there or not. They don't plan on stopping anytime soon when it comes to putting pressure on Fetterman because, as the Inquirer reports, Anissa Weinraub, an organizer with Jewish Voice for Peace who sat in the middle of the street, said pressure at Fetterman's office could persist on a weekly basis. Now, on top of that, 16 former Fetterman staffers penned an open letter to the senator urging him to support a ceasefire, writing, On the trail, your overarching promise was to forgotten communities, people and places that get overlooked, written off and left behind. You can't be a champion of forgotten communities if you cheerlead this war and the consequent destruction of Palestinian communities at home and abroad. We are speaking out now because we played important roles in electing you. We cannot in good conscience stay silent at this moment." So these folks are not opportunists who are challenging Fetterman for viral fame. They want him to support a ceasefire because it's the right thing to do. And there's no reason why he shouldn't engage with them. There's no excuse there. You have an excuse when it comes to a troll and not wanting to boost them or engage with them. But these folks, they deserve to be heard. I think that he should speak with them, right? And maybe he has spoken with some of them, but obviously their message isn't getting through to him because he's not doing what they want him to do. He's not doing the moral thing. And here's the thing. That letter, from his former staffers, was written 10 days ago. And with each passing day, the need for a ceasefire grows exponentially because, at the time that I record this video, Israel has killed approximately 3,195 children since their bombing campaign began three weeks ago, and the UN estimates that another 1,000 are missing or trapped under rubble, making the siege more deadly for kids than annual global conflict totals since 2019, as Jake Johnson of Common Dreams puts it. So with every passing minute, the need for a ceasefire grows, which is why calls for a ceasefire are continuing to happen hundreds of thousands of people around the globe are calling for a ceasefire, including many Jewish peace activists who took to the streets demanding a ceasefire as well. Rabbis are literally being arrested for doing so. I mean, the Pope has called for a ceasefire. Human rights groups like Amnesty International have called for a ceasefire. Civil rights groups like the Martin Luther King Jr. Center have called for a ceasefire. Former Obama administration officials have called for a ceasefire. So, I mean, you have human rights organizations, activists, civil rights groups all calling for a ceasefire. And on the other side, you have people who have been wrong about everything when it comes to foreign policy saying no to a ceasefire. Case in point.
6: People who are calling for a ceasefire now do not understand Hamas. That is not possible. It would be such a gift to Hamas because they would spend whatever time there was a ceasefire in effect rebuilding their uh, armaments you know, creating stronger positions to be able to fend off uh, an eventual um, assault by the Israelis. So, we're in a very different world. I don't think it had to be the world we're in, but that's where we are and we've got to figure our way through Forward
5: through it. So, when the person who voted for the Iraq war and did regime change in Libya and called for a no fly zone in Syria that could have catalyzed a hot war with Russia says something about foreign policy, I think it's a safe bet to just assume that the opposite of what they're saying is true. But I mean, that's who Fetterman is choosing to side with. But unfortunately, he's not the only senator on the wrong side of history. Nor is he the only Democrat taking heat. Hundreds of alum from Bernie Sanders' presidential campaigns are also urging him to support a ceasefire as well, and 15 people were reportedly arrested during a Jewish-led sit-in in front of his office, where activists demanded that he introduce a companion resolution to the House's resolution calling for a ceasefire. Now, what Bernie Sanders and John Fetterman have done to placate activists is call for a humanitarian pause in lieu of a ceasefire, but, as Adam Johnson explained in a recent episode of Crystal Kyle and friends, that is a spineless position to take that will amount to nothing.
6: This says stop bombing in this particular spot so we can bring in humanitarian aid. I guess we'll bring in some water and then we're going to allow Israel to just go back to bombing you after we give you water. It's absurd. It doesn't make any sense. For anything to happen, the ask needs to be to stop the bombing, um, and they needed to create space for Israel to go. You know, again, to do its Bronze Age, or, its, its Bronze Age recompense, and and in doing so. They need to they need to they need to provide space and cover for Democrats who don't want to look like cold-hearted monsters and don't want to look like they're supporting because again, these horrific images are coming out every day. children being pulled out of rubble, disfigured all this horrific stuff, right? People can see that And they know Joe Biden's associated with that. And of course, genocide Joe is alliterative. it's catchy. Um, and again, one doesn't want to be glib about this, but that is in fact what's going on. and that is the reality of what's going on. This is not like a made up, nihilistic you know russia today thing this is like a real thing that's happening and biden is actually responsible for it and he needs to stop being responsible for it and so they have to provide these kind of stop measure gaps and so initially what you saw from people like elizabeth warren um and uh Khanna was this israel needs to respect the rules of war We need to we need to reduce civilian casualties and we need to like maybe maybe they'd say turn the water back on, which is obviously better than no water. But is it's like, well, 90 percent of the thing causing their death and misery is the bombs. Why are you not talking about stopping the bombs from landing on them? That is obviously the most morally urgent ask.
5: In other words, a humanitarian pause is nothing more than window dressing. I know that Bernie Sanders knows and John Fetterman, too, that a ceasefire is the right thing to call for. But for whatever reason, they are too afraid to do the right thing here. They know it's right. But instead, they don't call for a ceasefire. Instead, they make up some chicken shit alternative to make it seem as if they care, when apparently, to the extent that they do care, well, it's not enough to actually call for what human rights groups are saying we need right now. They're sidestepping human rights groups like Amnesty International and saying, no, we actually want this different thing, a humanitarian pause, when they're saying ceasefire, So you're not just being a coward, you're undermining what they're fighting for currently. And every single day that senators like Bernie Sanders and John Fetterman refuse to call for a ceasefire, the more complicit they become because they have a lot of pressure. As a U.S. senator, if you are not using your voice right now to demand an end to the bombing, you are part of the problem. You are complicit. And we're seeing so-called pragmatists and foreign policy experts claim that a ceasefire is dumb because it's unrealistic or they'll try to nuance troll and make it seem as if you know if you call for a ceasefire then you really don't understand the complexity of the situation that's what hillary clinton did but the u.s government has an immense amount of influence over the actions of the israeli government so yes it is true that joe biden cannot unilaterally say the bombs stop now and it happens right but odds are israel's gonna listen if Its number one ally tells them they should stop bombing Palestinians. Or even if, hypothetically speaking, the entire US government says, hey, ceasefire now, and Israel refuses, well, then you still have leverage, cut off aid. Because again, they've got a universal healthcare system, and we don't. So I don't know why we're buying bombs for them in the first place, but there are tools at your disposal as a US politician that you can use, and many of them have chosen to just stand back and... uh, do nothing but believe it or not the tide is turning even pundits on mainstream media are starting to call for a ceasefire because that is the obvious solution now that list is admittedly small but chris hayes put out a lengthy statement explaining why a ceasefire isn't just the most moral thing to call for but it's also the practical thing to call for and i'll leave you with his words of wisdom
3: You've probably seen these images over the past three weeks pasted on lampposts and held up at visuals around the world the faces and the names of the more than 200 Israeli hostages taken by Hamas terrorists when they attacked southern Israel and committed a mass atrocity, slaughtering men and women, children, and the elderly. Recently, there have been a number of despicable incidents of people so full of hate of Jews, they've actually ripped these images down, as if that could erase the humanity of the people whose images are on them. And for anyone who lived through 9-11, those images bring back memories of the thousands of flyers of the missing put up all over Manhattan in the frantic days after that terrorist attack where so many family members left grieving. And there was a small group of them that took that grief and turned it into action. They spoke out asking their country, our country, not to respond to the deaths of their loved ones with more violence. They founded an organization called September 11th Families for Peaceful Tomorrows. At that time, in the wake of 9-11, supporting a nonviolent response to al-Qaeda's mass murder was at the very fringes of public opinion. And I remember being struck by the sheer grace, moral witness of those who had personally lost loved ones. I also thought, as many did at the time, was that, that was not how the world works. Terrorists slaughtered Americans. America had to respond with force. But as the war on terror dragged on, thousands of American service members and hundreds of thousands of civilians were killed and radicalization spiraled into ISIS and a new round of brutal wars. As all that happened, the call for peace and nonviolent solutions began to seem not just idealistic, but in retrospect, wise. Now there are Israeli families whose loved ones were murdered and kidnapped by Hamas who have somehow found the same moral grace. In her eulogy, the sister of one victim called on Israel to, quote, not use our deaths and our pain to cause the death and pain of other people or other families. Another victim's son said, do not write my father's name on a military shell. The mother of a victim pleaded, quote, war is not the answer in my name. I want no vengeance. And this time we should listen more closely to those who are calling for peace, who are calling for a ceasefire, and particularly to those still in mourning now, calling for no more civilian deaths, on either side of the line.
7: And Rashida Talib organized with that group and they did. They did protest and they did an insurrection um, into our Capitol complex, stopping Congress and stopping the Senate. So this is just a fraction. She's also has, a, has an extreme record of anti-Semitic language, um, uh, but speaking out against Israel, she supports BDS, Um, Rashida Tlaib is a radical and she does not support or stand for anything that we stand for here in America.
5: You just heard Marjorie Taylor Greene with a straight face, mind you, call Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib anti-Semitic and also accuse her of doing an insurrection. Why? Well, because she spoke at a D.C. rally organized by Jewish peace activists who demand a ceasefire in Gaza. That's why. You know, it sure is a good thing that Marjorie Green has never done an insurrection herself or said anything anti-Semitic ever because, you know, if that were the case, it might look like she's being a bit dishonest here. I mean, it's such a joke. Irony is dead, <laughs> and I don't know what else to say about it. Now, the reason why she is attacking Rashida Talib is because she introduced a resolution to censure Talib and dedicated a substantial amount of time lobbying Republicans to support this meaningless resolution. And when I say substantial amounts of time, I mean talking and tweeting about this endlessly for weeks. If you look at her Twitter timeline, she's made countless tweets attacking Rashida Talib, accusing her of doing a Hamas erection, also sharing a video where Talib correctly calls Israel an apartheid state, accusing Rashida Talib of being Triggered. It's quintessential clown shit. So much so that some Republicans have even vocalized opposition to her dumbass resolution. And uh, you better believe that she had something to say about those Republicans as well.
3: So let me let me ask you: uh, Do you anticipate every Republican colleague voting for this, and if not, why?
7: Charlie, I did anticipate every single Republican colleague of mine, and even Democrats, because I've talked to several of them that want to vote to censure Rashida Tlaib as well. But I wanna let you know, um, I was shocked last night on our GOP conference call when several Republican members of Congress spoke up and said they did not want to vote to censure Rashida Tlaib. Um, That was Walberg, Rep. Walberg from Michigan, uh, Rep. Um, Duarte from California and Rep. Young Kim from California. And she even went so far to say young Kim said that she didn't want to have to vote on on political positions. Yet young Kim, I'd like to remind everyone, voted to kick me off of committees. But somehow she feels uncomfortable voting to censure Democrat, anti-Israel, pro-Hamas Rashida Talib. So it seems like Republican Young Kim would rather stand with Rashida Tlaib uh, than stand with me because she kicked me off committees but doesn't want to censure Rashida Tlaib.
5: You know, I kind of get the sense that this isn't really about Rashida Tlaib and Marjorie just kind of has an ax to grind. Now, will there be some Republicans who vote against this? Possibly. But for the most part, I do expect Republicans to to basically all support this and i also expect democrats to support this as well some democrats not all now you can find out when this vote takes place tomorrow i will link to the live vote but um yeah this is ridiculous it's it's virtue signaling but it's right on brand for marjorie taylor green who has no core ideology it's just about bluster and bombast and stupidity overall. Now, in response, Rashida Tlaib released a short but sweet statement calling the resolution unhinged and also adding, I am proud to stand in solidarity with Jewish peace advocates calling for a ceasefire and an end to the violence. I will not be bullied, I will not be dehumanized, and I will not be silenced." good for her. And she also pointed out Marjorie Taylor Greene's Islamophobia, which is absolutely evidence. And she's not really even trying to hide it at this point. She retweeted a right-wing grifter who shared a video of himself harassing Tlaib, calling her a member of the Jihad squad, and also calling for her deportation, then tagged a bunch of Republican accounts for clout. And of course, Marjorie Taylor Greene is one of the Republicans that gave him said clout. And this rhetoric is always disgraceful. But during times like this, when we're seeing an uptick in Islamophobia, it is downright ghoulish care reports a massive uptick in islamophobic incidents since the hamas attack on 10-7 with muslim members of congress also seeing a spike in death threats and simultaneously anti-semitism has also sharply increased as well with jewish students on cornell's campus receiving multiple ominous threats calling for the murder of jews on campus with one anonymous person directly threatening to shoot up a building with a kosher dining hall and on top of that a literal lynch mob broke out at an airport in dagestan russia with hundreds if not thousands of people reportedly searching for Jewish passengers who arrived on a flight from Tel Aviv and seeing all of the hate is genuinely horrifying right now. And this is why I always go out of my way to emphasize that Hamas does not represent Palestinians and the Israeli government does not represent Jewish people. And I've seen countless Muslims condemn Hamas, if not the overwhelming majority of them. And we've seen so many Jewish peace activists in the United States call for a ceasefire, but still Hate proliferates when tensions are high and people who are opportunistic, who hate Muslims and Jewish people, are going out of their way to exploit this situation, exploit tragedy to promote their hateful agenda. And that's why I think it's really important for politicians to be careful with their language in times like this in particular. But that's a bit too much to ask of a moron like Marjorie Taylor Greene. Now, Jake Tapper, of all people on CNN, took some time to call out Marjorie Taylor Greene for what she's doing. And what he said here was spot on.
0: Anti-Semitism is not a cudgel to be used against people for political points. Nor is Islamophobia or racism or anti-gay behavior or misogyny or, or any other kind of bigotry. Just over three weeks ago, 1,400 people, mostly Jews, mostly civilians, were slaughtered here in some of the cruelest and most unimaginable ways in the deadliest day for jews since the holocaust this shit is not a game
5: very well said it is especially disgusting for someone who's made so many vile anti-semitic comments to disingenuously cry anti-semitism to score cheap political points when we all know that she doesn't actually care at all about anti-semitism and is anti-semitic herself now i don't agree with jake tapper on everything but in this clip He defended Rashida Tlaib. We didn't see that part, but even though he stated he has disagreements with her, he stated the obvious. Something isn't automatically an insurrection because you disagree with the protesters. But I mean, this has kind of become a go-to smear tactic for Republicans since January 6th. Tennessee Republicans justified the expulsion of Democrats by calling their speech during a protest at the state capitol an insurrection. And before that, when trans protesters showed up to Oklahoma's capitol to oppose a ban on gender-affirming care, can you guess what they were called? They were called insurrectionists by Tucker Carlson and others. Some called it the transurrection. So fast forward to today, and Congress's only Palestinian member was speaking at a protest organized by Jewish peace activists. And can you guess what that's being called? An insurrection, of course. Everything is an insurrection because she is projecting and trying to deflect. But I mean, for Marjorie Green, who was an election denier and co-conspirator in Trump's effort to literally overturn the 2020 election to call anyone else an insurrectionist ever is the height of hypocrisy, obviously. But I mean, this is Marjorie Green, And even though she is stupid, she knows what she's doing. And she's not just a hypocrite when it comes to her crying insurrection. The fact that she or any Republican for that matter has the audacity to feign concern over antisemitism is really rich considering all the things that they've said and all the politicians they've supported over the years. And Jake Tapper also pointed this out as well.
0: Are House Republicans really in a position to censure Tlaib? I mean, the leading Republican presidential nominee, Donald Trump, I mean, He dined with Holocaust deniers. Donald Trump posted a screed accusing liberal Jews of, quote, voting to destroy America and Israel last Rosh Hashanah to nary a peep from any House Republican leaders. I mean, let's just take as an example, oh, I don't know, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia. I mean, Greene spoke at the white supremacist conference run by Holocaust denier, racist, anti-Semite Nick Fuentes, who participated in that hateful 2017 Charlottesville rally. Now, Green later said she didn't know Fuentes' views, although they were pretty well known. This is the same Marjorie Taylor Greene who has pushed the great replacement theory in videos, the deranged notion that rich Jews are trying to replace white Americans and Westerners with blacks and brown Muslims. Not to mention, of course, her Jewish space laser conspiracy that a consortium including, yes, wealthy Jews, were using lasers on satellites to start forest fires. Here in Israel, Green has gotten some attention for belittling the Holocaust by tweeting, quote, Joe Biden is Hitler with the hashtag, Nazi Joe has got to go. And for saying that then Speaker Nancy Pelosi's House floor mask mandate was an abuse just like how Jews were quote, put in trains and taken to gas chambers in Nazi Germany. Under fire, Green visited the Holocaust Museum and apologized.
5: Credit where it's due. Look, I don't oftentimes give CNN or Jake Tapper credit, but they deserve credit here. That was a good segment. So Marjorie Taylor Greene obviously is a clown, but I feel like that is the most obvious statement ever. And when it comes to her acting like a buffoon, that's to be expected at this point, right? She's a child. I expect this kind of behavior from Marjorie Taylor Greene, so I'm not surprised at all by it. But what I do have to say is that I am disappointed in the people who are going to go along with this charade, all to further demonize a member of Congress who's already facing death threats because she has the courage to speak out for Palestinian human rights in the face of persecution. Now, as I stated at the start of this video, we don't know the outcome of this vote yet, but I expect a lot of Democrats to go along with this. This is what happened when Ilhan Omar decided to uh, condemn money from the Israeli lobby. That's not an anti-Semitic statement to make. It is a matter of fact. There are lots of foreign governments who spend money lobbying the U.S. government. That's just what happens when we commodify elections and turn everything into a money-making venture in our late-stage capitalist society. Israel does not equal Jewish people, right? But she was censured for that. Lots of Democrats went along with the demonization of her as well, and I expect the same here with Rashida Tlaib. Now, Marjorie Greene and Republicans, they can try to silence Rashida Tlaib and they can try to shut her down. But Rashida Tlaib represents so much more than just one seat in Congress. She represents an entire movement of millions of people around the world who aren't afraid to condemn Israel's fascist government. She represents human rights activists who know that Israelis and Palestinians will never see peace so long as Israel's brutal system of apartheid remains in place. And with time, Rashida Tlaib will be vindicated. I genuinely believe that. I think that future historians are going to look back at this moment and be shocked that what Rashida Tlaib is saying here, her calls to end oppression, are literally controversial in the year 2023. But time is ticking. And it's going in one direction and public sentiment is already changing very quickly. But until that time comes where Israel does end apartheid and there is equality and Palestinians have human rights and dignity, you can count on people like uh, Rashida Tlaib to put in the work to make that future a reality. And you can also count on idiots like Marjorie Taylor Greene to exploit tragedy and use this as an opportunity to promote herself because that's what idiots do.
7: Is there a threshold for you and do you think there should be one for the United States government at which the U.S. would say let's hold off for a second in terms of civilian casualties? Uh, Is there is there a point at which you would start to
5: You just heard Republican Senator Lindsey Graham answer the question that many of us have asked. How many innocent civilians have to die until you call for a ceasefire? And the answer is as many as it takes 1,000, 2,000, 10,000, 100,000. The number doesn't matter. We're unequivocally standing with Israel no matter what. They can bomb refugee camps, administer collective punishment, use white phosphorus. It doesn't matter how many innocents die. We are going to stand with Israel, even if that makes us complicit. Now, that answer is not surprising coming from a bloodthirsty warmonger like Lindsey Graham, but many liberals might be surprised to learn that this is the same stance as the Biden administration. They've explicitly stated that they're not drawing red lines for Israel. And that's not surprising considering that the White House press secretary dismissed calls for a ceasefire as repugnant and compared anti-Israel protesters, who, by the way, are calling for a ceasefire, to the Nazis who marched in Charlottesville in 2017. And the reason why they're saying this, the reason why it's permissible to just dismiss the suffering and slaughter of innocent Palestinians is because our politicians and media have so thoroughly dehumanized Palestinians that the idea of an innocent Palestinian itself is literally being challenged. And that's not hyperbole.
6: I would encourage the other side to not so lightly throw around the idea of innocent Palestinian civilians, as is frequently said. Uh, I don't think we would so lightly throw around the term innocent Nazi civilians during World War
5: II. I mean, 50% of the people in Gaza are children, but we have to be really careful with our language here so as to not humanize the Palestinians because we don't want to give Americans the impression that Palestinians are innocent in the middle of Israel's genocide. Otherwise, the public might start to question whether or not it's ethical for us to support them being wiped off the map or being leveled like a parking lot as one politician put it.
0: I don't even want to call it the Palestinian flag because they're not a state. They're a territory that's about to probably get eviscerated and go away here shortly as we're going to turn that into a parking lot.
5: Despicable, but completely on brand for Republicans. I mean, they don't care about Americans being slaughtered endlessly in countless mass shootings. So, of course, they're not going to care about innocent civilians in Gaza being massacred as well. But on the subject of gun violence, many Democratic politicians have rightfully posed the question to Republicans that is now being asked to them, how many more innocent people have to die until you take? action. In the case of gun violence, how many more innocent Americans have to be murdered until Republicans do something? Ban assault weapons, pass a national background check law. And we've never gotten a direct answer to that question, but years of inaction has essentially told us everything that we need to know. And when Democratic politicians hammer Republicans for their complicity in gun violence, they are quick to call out the role played by the NRA. And they're correct to point that out. The NRA spends millions of dollars every single election cycle almost exclusively on republicans to buy their complicity and it works as democratic congressman richie torres puts it no amount of mass murder against children is enough for the republican party to let go of the iron grip the nra has on them sickening and he even courageously called for the abolition of the nra entirely and what he's saying here makes sense because when human life is at stake how can you justify taking money from an organization that is effectively paying you to be complicit in the deaths of innocent people It's basically blood money. But the same can be said about him as well. Like the NRA, APAC is a far-right neoconservative interest group that spends millions and millions of dollars every single election cycle lobbying politicians to buy their complicity in Israel's oppression of the Palestinian people in West Bank and Gaza. But unlike the NRA, AIPAC actually gives to both Republicans and Democrats, though both organizations spend close to the same amount lobbying each year, give or take. So if you're wondering why liberal Democrats unequivocally support israel's right-wing government and refuse to criticize netanyahu's war crimes even though he is basically their version of donald trump this is why it's the same reason why the republicans won't do anything about gun violence in the same way that the nra buys compliance AIPAC does the same when it comes to Israel policy. Take Richie Torres for example again. His biggest campaign contributor in the last election cycle was APAC, and that money was well spent because Richie Torres has not only shot down the notion of a ceasefire but he's also criticized people calling for one and also denies the notion altogether that Israel is doing a genocide in Gaza. Now, keep in mind that Israeli Holocaust scholar Raz Siegel says that Israel's assault on Gaza is a textbook case of genocide and on top of that, the U.S director of human rights resigned over the west's support for what he calls genocide his words not mine but if you ask richie torres whether or not it's a genocide well here's what i'll say the the notion that israel's committed ethnic cleansing and genocide is absurd and keep in mind that the critics of israel have been accusing israel of committing genocide long before the conflict um, you know israel is in an enormously complicated situation if you believe as i do That Israel has the right to defend itself. In order to defend itself, it has to drive Hamas out of power. If Israel were to keep Hamas in power, it would run the risk of an even deadlier terrorist attack against its own people in the future. And Israel cannot afford a Hamas that's empowered to perpetrate deadly terrorist attack against its own people. The highest responsibility of any government, whether it's the United States or Israel, is to protect its people. With a straight face, he said the notion that Israel is committing a genocide is absurd. Now, I, for one, I'm more inclined to agree with the Israeli Holocaust scholar and an expert on human rights at the UN. I'm inclined to think that they know a lot more about this than Richie Torres, but I mean, his point is that Israel has the right to defend itself no matter the cost. So this begs the question, again, how many innocent Palestinians have to die in the name of Israel defending itself before Richie Torres says enough is enough. 10,000, 20,000, I mean 3,195 children plus have already been killed in three weeks in the name of self-defense. So the question is, how much is enough for Richie Torres? And as someone who knows the power of lobbying he knows the answer. So let's put his tweet back up and you'll notice that I took the liberty to change a couple of words. Quote, no amount of mass murder against children is enough for the Democratic Party to let go of the iron grip APAC has on them. Sickening. So when he calls out the NRA for their blood money, that's the pot calling the kettle black. And I may have changed some words there in that tweet, but that is effectively the position that Richie Torres, as well as the Biden administration, is taking, which isn't a surprise considering all the money that Biden took as well from the Israel lobby during his tenure as a U.S. senator. But if you point this out... You're anti-Semitic, according to Richie Torres, because he responded to claims that he's bought off by lobbyists saying, there's a false narrative that I am pro-Israel because of quote, the Jewish lobby or quote, Jewish money or whatever anti-Semitic tropes critics wish to invoke. Left unmentioned is the fact that I have been pro-Israel for nearly a decade, long before I ever thought of running for Congress. Now, to his latter point, I mean, I guess that's fair. Maybe he was unapologetically pro-Israel before running for Congress, but the same can also be said about Republicans that Richie Torres criticizes. Maybe Jim Jordan, the single biggest individual recipient of NRA money, was also pro-gun before he got into Congress, and he was always really enthusiastic about no gun safety laws in America. I mean, if it's true for Richie Torres, the same can be said for pro-gun Republicans, right? Right. Now, his main point there is that pointing out this corruption is apparently anti-Semitic. Now, if you'll notice, he did a little bit of a switcheroo there, and he said the Jewish lobby and Jewish money, which is a straw man because critics who refer to AIPAC are referring to the Israel lobby. Now, there is a difference, and it's important that we don't muddy the waters between these differences and obfuscate. So, the difference is that the Israel lobby does not spend money at the behest of the Jewish people. This is not a Jewish human rights organization or a Jewish advocacy organization. They spend money at the behest of Israel's right-wing government. And this isn't unique to Israel. If you look at the total foreign law being done since 2016, Israel is actually ninth out of 10. Number one is China. Is it xenophobic to point that out? No, because everyone knows that China is lobbying when it comes to business and trade. Saudi Arabia spends more than Israel. So when we point out that it's wrong to sell them weapons because we know that they're going to use them on innocent Yemenis, is it Islamophobic to point that out? No, because Saudi Arabia represents the Saudi Arabian government when they lobby, not Muslim people. Similarly, when the Israel lobby spends money, they are not advocating for jewish people they are promoting the neoconservative positions that the israeli government holds when it comes to iran and they're trying to buy silence when it comes to the israeli government's treatment of palestinians but all of a sudden according to richie torres it's anti-semitic no that is such a despicable thing to say because anti-semitism is very real and it is rising around the globe now There are conspiracy theories about Jews controlling the governments and the media, and they are deeply harmful and anti-Semitic, and we must defeat them. But what these defenders of Israel are doing is they're trying to muddy the waters and pretend as if criticism of Israel is tantamount to those right-wing conspiracy theories about Jewish people. When... That doesn't even make sense because we don't have that same standard for any other government because it's illogical. Of course, you can critique a government without critiquing the people. People are people and governments are governments. But what Richie Torres is paid to do is draw this equivalent specifically to silence critics of Israel. But in doing so, he is effectively smearing Jewish people, a community that he is not a part of. Because Jewish people are not responsible for the actions of Israel's fascist government. And to say that a criticism of Israel is tantamount to a criticism of Jewish people, is that not an incitement of hatred? Because when we see that Israel is doing war crimes, you're basically saying, no, Jewish people are responsible for that too. That's not okay. Countless Jewish peace activists have led protests against Israel's genocide in Gaza. So when you conflate... Israel with all Jewish people, you are attaching culpability to them in the same way that Israel's government is attaching culpability to all Palestinians by drawing a false equivalence between them and Hamas. You're no better than the politicians who are saying there are no innocent Palestinians. Again, people are people and governments are governments. Muddying the waters in that regard is downright dangerous. It helps to proliferate hate against these communities that are seeing an increase of hate because of what's happening. And if you can point out the NRA's effects on politicians, you obviously can do the same when it comes to Israel. And spoiler alert, we live in a late-stage capitalist hellscape. Most policy positions of politicians can be explained by simply looking up their donors. Want to know which politicians support Medicare for All? The ones that haven't taken money from the health insurance industry. Want to know which ones are perfectly fine with 68,000 Americans dying every single year due to a lack of health insurance? Well, the ones who took donations from the health industry want to know which politicians don't support an increase in the minimum wage. Just look up the donations that they've taken from large multinational corporations who disproportionately employ minimum wage workers, so on so forth. This is the way that our government functions and calling that out is important. It's honest. It's not anti-Semitic. But those who say that it is anti-Semitic are playing a very dangerous game here, and they're inciting hatred against people who have nothing to do with the actions of the Israeli government. But thankfully, lawmakers are starting to call this out, and uh, it's not just progressives who are doing that. For example, APAC called out lawmakers who voted against the House resolution standing with Israel, saying, instead of standing with Israel, Republican Thomas Massey is standing with the squad. Now, IOC actually responded to that pointing out, APAC endorsed scores of January 6th insurrectionists. They are no friend to American democracy. They are one of the more racist and bigoted PACs in Congress as well, who disproportionately target members of color. They are an extremist organization that destabilizes US democracy. Now, Cory Bush chimed in saying APAC's dark money grift and anti-democracy propping up of insurrectionists are attempts to undermine the will of the people. They spread lies, distort and spend millions of dollars targeting black and brown elected officials working to end hate and injustice. Now, Ilhan Omar also jumped in, adding, "APAC literally ran ads with my face next to Hamas rockets, resulting in a string of threats against my life. When Democratic leadership called them out, they refused to apologize and kept the ads up. What they are doing is insulting and Islamophobic. You cannot claim to be progressive while launching a super PAC that exclusively targets progressives and supports Republicans in the general. Now, to my surprise, a Democrat who wasn't even called out by APAC jumped in. Mark Pocan, who echoed what AOC said, saying, Gotta admit, this sums up how many feel about what AIPAC really is about. Insurrectionists, WTF, no friend of democracy. Now APAC responded to him by calling him a hypocrite and accusing him of singling them out but he hit back saying what APAC doesn't tell you is they raise money from big Republican donors and spend it in democratic primaries against Democrats it's a cynical undemocratic strategy and since they clearly don't care about dead kids it's all about backing a conservative Netanyahu position Now AOC buttressed Pocan's point saying it's past time for us to recognize how toxic of a presence APAC has been in our political system. They actively boost candidates who tried to overthrow the U.S. election and run smear campaigns on members of Congress who stand up for human rights enough. Now, on top of that, Justice Democrats chimed in, pointing out AIPAC endorsed 109 Republican members of Congress that voted to overturn Joe Biden's election, including the current speaker, Mike Johnson. But it gets even better because Thomas Massey, the original target of AIPAC's tweet, a Republican, by the way, He also jumped in, saying, "APAC always gets mad when I put America first. I won't be voting for their $14 billion shakedown of American taxpayers either. Let them know what you think by replying to their post. They are intentionally misrepresenting my intent and the resolution I voted against. Now, in a follow-up tweet, he explained his reasoning for opposing that resolution. Among them, he thought that it was too hawkish and he didn't want to commit to foreign aid that he doesn't support. But most importantly, quote, it contains an open-ended promise of military support that is so broad that it could be interpreted to commit u.s soldiers to the conflict u.s troops should not be engaged in this conflict and it tends to broaden the conflict to other countries when it would be better to keep the war contained geographically so apac thought that they could go after a bunch of lawmakers who oppose them and these lawmakers would be too afraid to speak out but they're not they're fighting back finally. APAC is smearing these lawmakers pretending like they refuse to stand with Israel or condemn Hamas when in actuality the resolution that they opposed is much more complex than that. Progressives who opposed it did so because there was no concern for Palestinians. So for Thomas massey and Progressives to take the gloves off and go after APAC like this in a direct public way that is huge. It almost feels like a paradigm shift because this is something that politicians avoid because it could be the end of their careers. And what AOC and all of these politicians are doing here is important because it forces Democrats to take APAC money to explain why they're aligned with a far-right organization that contributes to Republicans. And that framing matters because Democratic Party voters might not know that APAC is bad because it's lobbying specifically at the behest of Israel's ultra-nationalist Trumpian government. But if they end up finding out that Democrats are taking money from an organization that also supports insurrectionist Republicans, I mean, that could change their perception of this organization as well as Democrats that take money from this organization. Now, before you send flowers to Thomas Massey and Mark Pocan, uh, you should probably know that Pocan also does not support a ceasefire despite his denunciation of APAC, And uh, Thomas Massey is basically the inverse of Richie Torres when it comes to the NRA, albeit to a lesser extent. He only admits to taking two thousand dollars from the NRA, but it's a little bit disingenuous to say that because, as Becky Whitehill points out, Citizens United has made it so organizations can give indirectly to politicians through super PACs. So if you look up his donations, you'll see that he's taken thousands more from non-NRA gun interest groups throughout his career. And like the gun lobby, the Israel lobby is comprised of more than just AIPAC, and campaign contributions alone don't tell us everything. Thomas Massey might not be the most bought-off Republican when it comes to the gun lobby, but he knows that if he suddenly endorsed gun safety legislation, well, the gun lobby could come after him by funding his opponent in the next primary. And knowing this is a possibility has a profound impact on politicians. Take John Fetterman, for example. As The Intercept reports, quote, during his primary race against Representative Connor Lamb, as The Intercept previously reported, Fetterman allowed the Democratic majority for Israel, another pro-Israel interest group, to guide his platform on Israel and Palestine. DMF DMFI had spent the campaign season dropping millions of dollars in opposition to progressive democrats critical of US support for Israel, and Fetterman succeeded in avoiding their ire. And in order to avoid DMFI and AIPAC bankrolling his opponent during that primary, he had to make it crystal clear that he would support USAID to Israel without any additional conditions. Now what happens if you don't toe the line of the Israel lobby or you refuse to play ball with them? Well they could crush you as common dreams explains APAC in recent u.s elections has spent millions of dollars to defeat progressive candidates such as representative summer lee and former Ohio State Senator Nina Turner, both supporters of Palestinian human rights, as well as pro-democracy reforms in the U.S. with mixed success. And the success was mixed there because Summer Lee ended up winning despite all the money from the Israel lobby spent against her. But Nina Turner, however, ended up losing. Now, at one point, there was a poll that showed that Nina Turner had a 35-point lead over her opponent. And her opponent, Chantel Brown, knew that if she was going to win, she needed more money fast. So what did she do? Well, as The Intercept explains, she low-key pleaded with super PACs to throw her a life vest. In particular, she conspicuously shared quotes on her website about how she was very pro-Israel, and this was a shameless attempt to solicit contributions from the Israel lobby, but guess what? It worked. She got the money, and she won. Now, the same thing could happen to Cori Bush. In fact, it's happening right now before our very eyes, because as the Washington Post explains, St. Louis County Prosecutor Wesley Bell announced this week he was dropping his months-long bid to unseat one of the country's most outspoken Republican senators, Josh Hawley, to launch a primary campaign to oust fellow Democrat Representative Cory Bush. When asked to explain his switch, Bell pointed to Bush's criticism of Israel. Now, as Twitter user Sean points out here, this line of attack against Bush is his opening pitch to AIPAC and DMFI. And he's correct about that. I mean, why try to defeat an insurrectionist Republican when it's easier to raise thousands of dollars automatically by pledging your undying loyalty to Israel? See, him declaring loyalty to Israel isn't going to matter in the Senate race against Josh Hawley because Josh Hawley also pledged his undying loyalty to Israel. But where it could really make a difference is against the progressive deemed the enemy of AIPAC, Cory Bush. That money could be make or break. Cory Bush is in legitimate danger here. So this is what we're up against. This is why Democrats and Republicans have no red line when it comes to Israel's war crimes in Gaza. Now, you can also blame ignorance and cowardice. I think this is the case for some politicians like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. But for the most part, I think most politicians who toe the line, they're doing so because they were paid to do so by the Israeli lobby. Palestinians just don't have comparable lobbying power, so this is why politicians in both parties turn a blind eye to their suffering and pretend as if they don't exist. But times are changing. And public sentiment is shifting before our very eyes. The majority of Americans who now support a ceasefire, they're going to wonder why our government isn't supporting the common sense position. And they're soon going to learn that it's because money in politics is, again, the lowest common denominator. And in the same way that the NRA pays Republicans to do nothing about gun violence, APAC pays politicians in both parties to do nothing about Israel's war crimes in Gaza.
8: Okay. POV, your Ron DeSantis getting ready to go
1: out. You know, and I'm not judging you, but I'm just saying every everybody else is gonna
5: You just saw some of the more viral memes regarding Ron DeSantis' alleged affinity for high heels. And fun fact, that first video from the girl that we saw actually is not a liberal. She's a writer for the Babylon Bee, which is a conservative satire website. So everyone, and I mean everyone, is poking fun at Ron DeSantis specifically because he's possibly, probably wearing heels or height boosters or something. But you just saw the tip of the iceberg because people have pointed out that his heel lifts are so high, it looks like he's being photographed mid-rapture. And even Donald Trump has gotten in on the fun sharing some of the memes accusing DeSantis of wearing hidden heels. But I mean, this is a little bit of a sore spot for DeSantis' team because in response to that first video we watched, DeSantis' rapid response director Christina Pushaw responded saying quote, POV, you have nothing substantive to criticize DeSantis on as another plane load of Americans arrives home from Israel. Okay. Now, Ashley St. Clair, the girl who posted the first viral video, responded saying, uh, really disheartening to see this type of reaction to a joke. I've made many jokes about Trump and his campaign staff has never attacked me. Now, Pushaw replied to that, telling her to touch some grass. So they're very clearly butt hurt. Now, I don't know if DeSantis' rapid response director has ever heard of the Streisand effect, but if she didn't know, she should know now because Ashley St. Clair responded with a follow-up apology video that went even more viral than the first one.
8: So this is my first apology video. Uh, I made a joke about Ron DeSantis there's a very popular meme going around that DeSantis wears heels, very high heels. Uh, and I made a joke, I put on my stilettos and I said, "PLD, you're Ron DeSantis getting ready to go out. I thought it was funny, many people thought it was funny. I make jokes about everyone, Trump, DeSantis, Vivek. but the DeSantis team didn't think it was funny and that's what's most important. So I want to apologize from the bottom of my heart and they said it wasn't a very substantive criticism. And they also notified me that DeSantis doesn't wear stilettos. He wears cowboy boots. So not only would I like to apologize, but I would like to be accurate. I would like to correct the record and do this again. So take two. POV, You're Ron DeSantis, getting ready to go out.
5: Now, as you can see, she's putting on very flamboyant cowboy boots while playing these boots are made for walking, which is why I can't play the audio for you since it's copyrighted. But I mean, this entire meme has become so big that even Politico published an article consulting with shoe experts about DeSantis' boots. And uh, spoiler alert, they think he's wearing height boosters as well. And they have a very in-depth analysis about <laughs> whether or not he's wearing height boosters, which is just so it's, it's wild to me. Now, the reason why I'm talking about this is because DeSantis was finally asked about this during an appearance on the Conservative PVD podcast. And uh, as you're going to see, DeSantis was very, very uncomfortable and uh, feigned ignorance over jokes being made about him. He claims that he hasn't seen these memes yet, but... um. He's lying, but let's watch. Uh, are you the
4: type of person, like I have people around me that love to say, hey, Fat, you got something between your teeth. These are the annoying people in your life, right? Hey, Pat, pull your zipper up. You know, hey, Pat, do this. Hey, pull one of your socks is lower than the other one. I'm sure your marketing team points out how they're trying to troll you in the marketplace. Okay, I'm sure they're doing that. Can you bring this one clip? I know you were on, uh, 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 what do you call it? on? Uh, uh, what was it? Bill Maher. And Bill Maher talked about the boots. I've seen you walk with these boots. Go ahead and play this clip. This on TikTok went viral. It doesn't have a million views. It doesn't have, you know, 10 million views. This thing's got 1.2 million likes. And, and some people are wondering. What how do they? I don't even, under- so I haven't what, seen that. They've s- they not shown this to you. Okay. No. What they're trying to say with this is that in your boots, you have heels. No, no, no. That's yeah, what no th- to
2: those are just standard off the rack. Um,
4: Lucchese. Um, how, uh, Lu- how tall Lucchese, are you? How tall are you, Governor? Five eleven. Five eleven. Okay. Wh- why don't you wear tennis shoes and dress shoes? Uh, I do wear tennis
2: shoes when I work out. Yeah,
4: 100%. you do. Yep. Okay. I got a gift for you. I'd love for you to wear. Okay. I shop at Ferragamo. Okay. Eh. My God. I don't accept gifts. I can't accept I, it. I totally get I'm it. I'm sorry. I'm going to put it here, and Ferragamo can get a nice sponsorship. <laughs> <laughs> and then Okay. If you wear it, you fared. I know. It, it, no, but they, here's the thing. I mean, I think with just how politics works is, um, you know, Yogi
2: Berra, when he was um, uh, in the Yankees, they said... You know, Yogi, he doesn't look like a Yankee. You know, he doesn't do this. Yeah. And Yogi's basically like, okay, you know, if you if you say I'm ugly, that's fine, but you know, you don't hit a baseball with your face. And so, what we're doing is, you know, really, I think, doing the the issues, the leadership people that are poking at you for different things, that's fine. But ultimately, that is not, I think it's a sign of strength. I think if people had, if they could say he was for a horrible sure. governor, no, it, he was yeah. this, he was that, then they would definitely do it. Um, but uh, they don't do that because I don't think that they have much there. We've been an exemplary leader. We've we've gotten things done. Uh, we would be somebody that
5: would be a, obviously a really strong candidate. That's part of the reason the media attacks me and everything like that. He is the literal embodiment of the crying Wojak meme with the smile mask. <laughs> Actually, I'm glad they're attacking my shoes because that means they don't have anything else to attack me on okay sure listen he can pretend as if his feelings aren't hurt by this and pretend as if there aren't substantive reasons to criticize him but the fact is that there are He is a fascist book banner, a racist history revisionist. He's a fake vaccine skeptic who handed out COVID vaccines to his donors first. He's a warmonger, a corporate shill. He's antagonistic towards the First Amendment. Nearly a million Floridians lost healthcare because of him. So there are many substantive reasons to criticize DeSantis, but unfortunately for him, there's also a lot of unsubstantive reasons to attack him, ranging from his putting fingers to his robotic attempts at smiling to his heels. And he's an easy target. It all around but he can keep coping as he continues to embarrass himself and i am assuming that the embarrassments will continue so long as he continues this failing presidential campaign which is very clearly going nowhere i mean even mike pence had the dignity to drop out so what's DeSantis's excuse i would imagine ego but unfortunately for him the embarrassment did not stop there because shortly after that moment DeSantis got offended again when the host asked him about his failing book i'm a big fan of yours okay i am not a fan of your marketing team I'm just not. And I'm,
4: I can say that comfortably. You can say I have one of the best marketing teams, no problem, because I think your book was a miss. I think there's a lot of opportunities that's been out there that was a miss. I was on a flight one time with Bill O'Reilly. Why was it a miss? Uh, I think your book could have done very well. And it was I think, the number one book in the country for two weeks. Yeah, it's not a long time, though. You, oh. you're, you're a guy that should be the leading candidate for president. You were the, you were the best governor during COVID, hands down nobody did it better than you no one you had a fight you stood up to these bullies to all these a-holes that were trying to manipulate the voters like me and we were walking around as if we're weird and you stood up for those people and i loved it i respected it i went around defending you constantly and i'm sitting there saying why are we not telling this story why are we not going out there selling millions of copies of this book on what you did during COVID? So that, to me, was a was a missed opportunity. By the way, your marketing team can hate me. I've, take, I've no, no, look, talked well, to most well, given my I opinion with, on with that. With the book, I, don't, yeah. I didn't
2: really have a marketing team. I mean, you know, you're doing it and people sell it or they don't sell it. I go on, I go on media and whatnot. You didn't go around
4: talking to a lot of people about your book. Though. That was a great book
2: we tried. I mean, yeah, but, you know, don't forget, I was also in the midst of the legislative session. I had a lot on my plate and we were doing a lot of stuff.
5: I just love how DeSantis was perpetually offended, even as the host went out of his way to continue to blow smoke up his ass. He just he can't handle criticism very well, because like Trump, I think he's a narcissist and a megalomaniac. But the difference between him and Trump is that he doesn't have a cult to reinforce these feelings of uh, superiority so instead he kind of just flails and makes more of a fool of himself but I mean that's really all I've got with regard to this video I thought that the clip would provide us all with some much needed levity during these really dark times and it did make me laugh so I hope that you'll find some enjoyment out of it as well at the expense of Ronda Santos. <laughs>
9: I'm not trying to establish uh, Christianity as the national religion or something, that's not what this is about at all. If you truly believe in the Bible's commands and you, you seek to follow those, it is impossible to be a hateful person because the greatest command in the Bible is that you love God with everything you have and you love your neighbor as yourself.
5: You just heard Republican Speaker Mike Johnson address concerns about him being a hateful bigot towards gay people, allegedly. Now, he didn't say he was talking about queer people there. But to bring up hate, I mean, that was clearly a reference to all of the articles that have come out since he's become speaker about him not really being a big fan of members of the LGBTQ plus community. But according to him, we can be relieved to learn that he does not indeed hate gay people. And that is very reassuring to me as a member of the LGBTQ plus community myself, because I was beginning to worry admittedly a little bit, especially after learning about his advocacy for gay conversion therapy, for example, and his work with an organization doing gay conversion therapy and his wife's counseling services that compared homosexuality to bestiality and his longtime opposition to gay marriage and his national don't say gay bill and his advocacy for the criminalization of gay sex and his comparison of homosexuality to pedophilia or fears that homosexuality could literally destroy our entire democratic system. But thank goodness I have nothing to worry about as a gay man. You know, as somebody who was indoctrinated into fundamentalist Christianity myself at a very young age, I've experienced nothing but hate and vitriol from American evangelicals. But it is so nice to know that we have a speaker who is one of the good Christians, not one of the hate mongers, not one of the individuals who spread hate. Really happy about that. Now, I'm also very thankful that he cleared up the confusion around him possibly wanting a Christian theocracy, because as an atheist, that's also something that I was a little bit worried about too, specifically after he suggested a religious litmus test for politicians. As Ra's story explains, in one 2019 video, Kelly Johnson, this is his wife, reportedly told seminar participants that biblical Christianity or a literal interpretation of the Bible, including the belief that the earth is just 6,000 years old, was the only valid worldview. You better sit down any candidate who says they're going to run for legislature and say, I want to know what your worldview is. I want to know what you think about the Christian heritage of this country. I want to know what you think about God's design for society. Have you even thought about that? If they hadn't thought about it, you need to move on and find somebody who has, Mike Johnson reportedly said in 2019. See, that right there gave me pause, but hearing him say that he definitely doesn't want to establish Christianity as the national religion makes me feel so much better. We can all breathe easier now, knowing that um, it's not what it seems. It's it's not a duck, even though it's quacking. Now, sarcasm aside, the new Speaker of the House obviously is an absolute fucking lunatic. And in that interview, he was responding to critics concerned about his hateful past and present. But it was framed as an attack on his religion when in actuality... Um, There are reasons why critics have been as fierce as they have been, but regardless, here's some more from that interview.
10: You know, I want to highlight, and and this is truly outrageous, some of these things that have been said, but I'm just very curious about, to your point, a faith that is based on love, that is Jesus Christ, that was what he lived for, um, can be characterized in such a way, the Daily Beast called you a Christo-fascist. That is the first I've ever heard that term. Yeah. They said you're the most extreme example of a dangerously empowered religious fanatic. But here's the line that really stood out to me. They go on to say that your desire to institutionalize your faith is the way of the Taliban and the Mullahs in Iran. And then Bill Maher, who we know is not yes. a similar worldview as ours, he went so far as to bring up the main shooter and he said, we don't know much about the guy yet, but apparently he heard voices, and I thought, is he different than Mike Johnson? I mean, degree, yes, but it's thinner than you'd think. How? What is it like to be compared to the moles of Iran, the Taliban, and the main shooter?
9: It's just disgusting. I mean, that is absurd. Of course, our religion is based on love and acceptance so to compare that worldview with the taliban who seek to destroy their enemies or with you know some deranged shooter who murders people is absolutely outrageous and i think everyone who follows and believes in a judeo christian worldview should be just terribly offended by that i'm okay i'll take the arrows I understand it comes with leadership and when you step into the fray that's what you take And but but what what really hurts me is that it, it really is a statement about everyone who believes yes. in this that that The country was built upon our Judeo-Christian foundation is the heritage of our country. No, it's not.
5: And to be clear, I don't think anyone is saying that they have a problem with him being Christian. The problem arises when people like him try to use their power to institutionalize their religion. Right. We have the separation of church and state to the chagrin of Christians who don't want to acknowledge that. But it is in the Constitution. Look it up. And um, they just pretend like that doesn't exist. And then they try to use their religion as a justification to pass certain policies, as a justification to be bigoted against LGBTQ plus people. And the problem is that's what he's doing. That's why people are criticizing him and calling him a Christo-fascist. The problem is him using his religion as a driving force behind policy decisions of major consequence, case in point.
9: As, as 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 a Christian, I know and we believe that the Bible teaches very clearly that we're to stand with Israel, that God will bless the nation that blesses Israel, that we're to pay for peace of Jerusalem? Exactly.
5: And therein lies the problem. He is basing policy, at least in part, on religiosity, and as someone raised in the church, I promise you, evangelical support for Israel is deeply problematic, to put it mildly. Jacobin explains, the basis of the Israeli evangelical relationship, and so too evangelical support for using Israelis to dispossess Palestinians, is a belief that God gave Palestine to the Jews, and so Jews should be in Palestine. So far, so simple, but the yikes moment of the Israeli evangelical love is that the Jews being in Palestine is seen as a precondition for for an Armageddon to rain down on Earth, exterminating Jews and other non-converts to evangelism, while bringing the return of Christ in the apocalyptic second coming found in Revelation, the final book of the Bible. So understand that when an evangelical bases their support of Israel on religiosity, it is a means to an end. And they are implicitly acknowledging that all Jewish people and non-Christians will either be converted or killed in the Armageddon, which is something that they want to happen as soon as possible. but. It's impossible for him to be hateful. He's a Christian. Yeah. So when he offers $14 billion in our tax dollars in aid to Israel for their genocide against Palestinians, it's not just because he's beholden to the Israeli lobby. It's not just because he doesn't care about the suffering of innocent Palestinians. It's because Israel is laying the groundwork for Jesus' return, according to him. Now, as more troubling revelations about him and his wife continue to emerge, they are both going out of their way to hide the most alarming aspects of their Christo-fascism. For example, his wife, Kelly Johnson, nuked her counseling website where she compared homosexuality to bestiality and incest, and on top of that, as LGBTQ Nation explains, Johnson also removed 69 episodes nice of his and his wife's podcast, Truth Be Told, with Mike and Kelly Johnson from his website. The pair dedicated June of 2023 to praising anti-transgender activist Matt Walsh, who blamed the Club Q mass shooting on men who cross-dress in front of children, and said that he called for several boycotts of brands selling rainbow products this year in order to make the concept of pride toxic. The Johnsons also got mad at Disney for forcing a radical woke agenda and openly satanic programming on children. Now, just for clarification's sake, when an evangelical says satanic programming, there's a very good chance that they're saying LGBTQ plus affirming programming for children. So if there's like a rainbow flag in the background, or if a cartoon features a child with two moms or two dads, well, that is tantamount to satanism. Literally. Ask an evangelical, they will tell you that. So, you know, If he really believed that he hasn't said anything hateful, the question is, why delete so many episodes of their podcast? What if we wanted to go back and listen to it? I mean, I, for one, have been a longtime fan of Truth Be Told with Mike and Kelly, so I'm disappointed to know that they removed so many podcasts. But the question is, why not stand by your conviction, especially if it's not hateful? I mean, it's a good question, isn't it? Now, when it comes to his history of bigotry, which is undeniable, he's playing dumb. LGBTQ Nation continues. Before he was elected to Congress, Johnson was senior legal counsel for Alliance Defending Freedom, an SPLC designated hate group. In his position at ADL, he filed briefs asking courts to allow states to criminalize homosexuality and argued against allowing same sex couples to marry. Johnson has previously said that same sex marriage will lead to chaos and sexual anarchy and place our entire democratic system in jeopardy by eroding its foundation. He claimed legalizing same sex marriage would lead to pedophiles seeking legal protections for having sex with kids, and people trying to marry their pets. He has also said homosexual relationships are inherently unnatural, ultimately harmful, and costly for everyone. He has sought to criminalize private gay sex between consenting adults, called gay marriage the harbinger of chaos, and said gay people should not be a protected class because they are capable of changing their abnormal lifestyles. Johnson recently said that such extreme statements were so banal to him that he doesn't even remember them. In other words, after a comprehensive history of anti-gay advocacy, he's pretending to not remember any of it. Okay, well, if you're having memory problems, do you remember last year when you voted against the codification of same-sex marriage or your don't-say-gay legislation? Any of that ring a bell? See, the reason why this all seems banal to him is because he genuinely is deluded enough to think that he's not hateful when he advocates against civil rights for LGBTQ plus people. This is the go-to tactic for evangelicals. In one breath, they'll argue against our civil rights, but in another breath, they'll qualify the previous statement with an ostensibly tolerant caveat. For example, in a 2004 column he wrote, he warns, quote, experts project that homosexual marriage is the dark harbinger of chaos and sexual anarchy that could doom even the strongest republic. But right after that, he adds, to be pro-traditional marriage, and conscientiously opposed to all deviations from it is not to be anti-homosexual. How tolerant of him. As he wrote about how same-sex marriages would literally doom the Republic, he made sure to point out that he's definitely not anti-gay. It's amazing, isn't it? You see, you shouldn't have civil rights and you are definitely going to spend eternity in agonizing pain perpetually burning in the lake of fire and hell. But Jesus loves you. And because Jesus loves you, I love you because we don't hate anyone. We hate the sin, not the sinner. You know, there really is no hate like Christian love. And what he said in 2004, which is not that long ago, is really no different from the rhetoric that we heard from homophobes in the 1970s. Case in point.
9: Anita, suppose one of your children came
8: to you. Or suppose you found out in some way that one of your children was a homosexual. What would you do?
7: Well, first of all, I would love them and not disown them because they're my children. And I would tell them that God loves them and that I love them very much. And I would try to deal with that problem in the life that God does, that he loves us as as, uh, sinners, but he hates our sin and
10: that he cannot abide by sin. He cannot tolerate sin in our lives.
5: So loving. She'd maybe lovingly enroll her gay child in counseling by Kelly Johnson to teach them that they're comparable to animal fuckers and try to get them to pray with a gay or something. I mean, after all of these years they're still saying the same bullshit. Nothing has changed. And now all of the things that they said about gay people, they're copying and pasting that and saying it about trans people. But Mike Johnson can try to downplay or run away from his extremism, but we all know where he stands. He is a genuine danger to American democracy, not just because of his theocratic views, but because he is an insurrectionist supporting election denier who tried to overturn the 2020 election. And if American democracy fails, which is possible, unfortunately, it's not going to be because of gay people loving each other. It'll be because of Christo-fascist election-denying lunatics like Mike Johnson.
1: Want more? Visit humanistreport.com for links to our full catalog of videos on YouTube, Means TV, and Facebook. You can also find audio versions of the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, and other major podcast platforms. And before you go, consider supporting the show on Patreon or through YouTube memberships. you get early access to most videos, invites to monthly live chats with Mike, and you'll be thanked by name at the start of the next episode. There are other ways to support the show. You can like, subscribe, turn on notifications, and share our content on social media. Thank you for watching.